Kia ora and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. On Tuesday the 11th of August, Professor James Renwick and the Minister for Climate Change, the Honourable James Shaw, spoke at a public event at the University. They discussed what is currently being done in New Zealand to combat climate change and what we could do in the future. Distinguished guests, the Minister for Climate Change, the Honourable James Shaw, award-winning climate change scientist, Professor James Renwick, colleagues, students, ladies and gentlemen, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, kia ora koutou, koutou. My name is Professor Grant Guilford, Vice-Chancellor of Te Haringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand's globally ranked capital city university and New Zealand's first ranked university for research quality. It's a pleasure to welcome you all here tonight to this important event. Climate change is the single biggest challenge facing the world, even in the midst of a global pandemic. We are lucky to have two of New Zealand's leaders on climate change to talk directly about what is being done here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. In September last year, we welcomed Minister Shaw to our campus to launch the university's programme to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2030. Minister, I acknowledge your leadership and that of your government in seeking to address the causes and impact of climate change, and in particular your personal commitment to getting effective zero carbon legislation through Parliament, unanimously I believe. The Minister will be joined in the discussion by Professor James Renwick, who is a leading climate change researcher and head of the School of Geography, Environment and Earth Sciences here at Te Waka. His work engaging the public with the issues has been recognised with the award of the 2018 Prime Minister's Science Communication Prize. Professor Renwick is also a key member of the team of scientists who won the 2019 Prime Minister's Science Prize for their important and ongoing research into the effects of climate change on the Antarctic ice sheet. He is also one of six commissioners on New Zealand's Climate Change Commission. When the University launched our Carbon Zero Plan last year, we also hosted a discussion about the role of universities in transitioning to a zero carbon future, and today's event continues that conversation. I believe we have a big contribution to make in terms of the research and innovation that will assist a just transition, and we also have a role in guiding the development of resilient, capable and globally confident graduates who will be able to tackle the immediate and future challenges of climate change. And lastly, we will continue to contribute to public debate and engagement with climate change issues at events such as this Twin James event tonight. Tonight's discussion will explore what is currently being done in New Zealand to combat climate change and what more we can or should do. It will also look at how COVID-19 may have changed the landscape. Be assured there will be plenty of opportunity to ask questions, it is my great pleasure to invite the Honourable James Shaw and Professor James Renwick to the front. Thank you. Well, kia ora tato. It's just great to see so many people here tonight. And thanks very much, Grant, for the, the introduction. And welcome, Minister. It's really fantastic to be able to have this conversation with you this evening. Um, and just following on from what Grant was saying, I think it's really fantastic that this university is setting such a great example, aiming to be um, net zero carbon emissions by 2030, which is ahead of where we would need to be to stop global warming at one and a half degrees if 
every institution in the world followed that example. So I think it's one of the ways that a university can lead on climate change, just by showing the way, by setting an example, but also by, I guess, training um, and researching technologies, um, assisting in development of policy and governance, um, and really just training the, the future leaders of the country. So um, I think it's really fantastic that um, uh, Victoria University of Wellington is, is really leading the way on this. And thinking about what I might ask you to start off with, um, just so much has happened in the last year or so. Uh, it's less than a year ago that the, the Zero Carbon Act was passed, that the Climate Change Commission was set up. Uh, and now we've had the National Climate Change Risk Assessment tabled. So, the, and then on top of that, at the beginning of the year, we had the, the terrible bushfires in Australia. We've had a number of uh, extreme climate and weather events that have been very costly in human terms and in, in economic terms. So um, there's, there's all manner of things I could ask you, I suppose, but perhaps we could start by just getting your reflections on how you see the policy landscapes changed in New Zealand and, and I guess where we go from here, given that we have some new policy settings, what, what's, the, what's the plan for uh, actual reductions in emissions? Thanks, James. Um, uh, good evening, everybody. Um, thank you very much for taking the time to come out. I'm, I have to say I'm really delighted that uh, there's still a very high level of interest in what we do about climate change, even while everyone's current preoccupation is how do we navigate through the COVID-19 pandemic crisis. So I'm delighted that you're here. Uh, that gives me some faith. So the way, the way that I would describe it is um, over the course of the previous parliament, this one that's just drawn to a close this last week, the policy direction was around the high-level frameworks and the institutions. So setting the 1.5 degrees threshold into law, as a function of that a series of emissions reductions targets for 2030 and 2050. Uh, subsequent to that, what does that mean in terms of carbon budgets? Having the Climate Change Commission set up um, to advise the government on what um, those kind of five-year stepping stone um, emissions budgets should be uh, and so on. So. Uh, and then the other um, piece of legislation that got less public attention but was about 10 times as much work um, was the Emissions Trading Reform Bill, um, which was taking a root canal to our 12-year-old emissions trading scheme um, and making it line up with the objectives in the Zero Carbon Act um, and putting in place a cap on emissions inside the ETS, uh, setting up auctioning, uh, doing all the things that it was originally supposed to do 12 years ago, and so on. So all of that's around a kind of high-level um, economy-wide uh, institutions. Um, the coming term, uh, inshallah, uh, is I think much more about the kind of sector by sector approach. So one of the things that we've learned I think from the experience of the limited number of countries overseas that have actually both grown their economy and reduced emissions at the same time is that whilst our price on emissions, whether that's a carbon tax or an emissions trading scheme price, um, uh, makes a difference, but actually at the margin. Um, and partially that's because politicians won't allow the price to do what it's actually supposed to do, but partially because uh, you actually need to really work with individual industry sectors to say, what is the transition plan? How do we get from A to B? What are the regulatory constraints or you know landscape that we need to do for your sector to help to facilitate that? Are there things that government can do? Um, 
And without wanting to prejudge the advice of the Climate Change Commission, uh, it seems obvious um, at first glance uh, that the, the sectors that we would be likely wanting to get moving on in the very near term are transport, um, industrial heat, uh, and agriculture. Um, so in all three of those, there are current technologies available as substitutes for the emit high emitting technologies. Um, they are, those technologies are within a cooey of the price point of the existing technology, um, and, and, there are, and there are some, in some cases, there are some market constraints or regulatory constraints and so on. So um, there are cases for intervention there where we could probably get some quite big gains in a fairly short period of time. Um, yes, thank you, and that's my hope too. Um, and as it happens, I've spent today at the Climate Change Commission talking about what did they these say? very things. <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment. We're, it's all in draft. There's a lot of work to do yet, and, and there is a lot of work to do. Um, it's a big ask to write a document that explains how the country is actually going to reduce emissions, and of course it's such a difficult problem. Burning fossil fuels... You know, is at the base of the global economy, the national economy, and it's it's not easy just to turn off that tap. But we've all seen, I think, this year that you know the COVID nineteen, the pandemic, has had a terrible human cost and a and a huge economic cost. But everybody observed the skies clearing in the big cities around the world, and we've seen global emissions actually reduce for a while, at least this year. And I I wondered, um, what are your thoughts about what the response to the pandemic has taught us about uh, emissions reductions, about climate change, about our thinking around how we approach this problem? Well, I think that um, being locked in our bedrooms for four weeks was fine if you're a middle-class professional <laughs> um, and, and not so awesome if you weren't. Um, and so uh, those of us who noticed the increased bird life, uh, the quietness of our streets, uh, nature healing, um, tended to be people who were, you know, also in a position to be learning how to bake sourdough bread, um, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, and there were a lot of people who weren't in that position. Um, so... Uh, you know, Marx did say that change comes from the middle classes, so maybe um, maybe that makes a difference. But I, I, I sense that the uh, needing to deal with the consequence of the of the lockdown, which is this um, significant drop off in economic activity, uh, that that will. I mean, we're not really experiencing it now. We're in this kind of weird kind of post lockdown glow, um, but that's not likely to last, particularly as the global economy, you know, continues to degrade. Um, I worry that our obsession will be, you know, focus on short-term growth, just keep doing more of what we were doing before. There is quite a human response as well, which is like, this is awful, can we please just go back to, you know, the way it was before? Um, and I just think that we've got a moment here where we can stop and say, um, actually, the status quo wasn't awesome. You know, there were it was great for some people, but there were there were consequences to it. Um, and given that we have to inject an astonishing amount of liquidity into the economy uh, over the course of the coming uh, 12 to 24 months, um, 
can we at least direct as much of that as possible towards solving the long-term challenges facing the um, country? Otherwise, future generations of taxpayers are hit with a double whammy. Not only do they have to um, pay increased taxes to pay off all the debt that we're currently running up to get ourselves through this crisis, they also have to pay for the climate crisis, the housing crisis, etc. Whereas if we actually use this stimulus money, it's the equivalent, by the way, of essentially about the next 17 years' worth of discretionary budgets that we're currently burning through. Um, so if we're bringing forward close to 20 years' worth of spending, we might as well spend it on the things that we were going to end up spending it on in the next 20 years anyway. Um, and, and that way you get a two-for-one deal. Um, you know, you get ourselves through this crisis and also you prevent those, those future crises. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And I think it was um, Christiana Figueres who was saying recently, she was sort of the architect of the Paris Agreement, you might say, um, commenting that uh, the, the science says if we're going to stop the warming at one and a half degrees, we need to reduce emissions globally by half by 2030, so 10 years. She said, well, forget about 10 years. It's actually 18 months that the investments we make in the next year or two are going to set the tone for what, plays out in the global economy over the next, well, several decades, actually. So time really is short, and we need to make some smart decisions around how we invest, like you say, to avoid future costs. Um, where do you think New Zealand's at in that sense? I think flirting. <laughs> uh, and is that good enough? <laughs> We're batting our eyelids at the um, our eyelashes at the future. I think... Um, uh, so if you look at how we have spent the COVID recovery uh, fund so far, it's this $50 billion fund that we devoted to um, getting ourselves through the crisis, of which there's about $14 billion left in the tank, um, then about... It will take about half of it's gone on wage subsidies, which are basically purely short term. That's about just keeping people in their jobs and allowing businesses to get the time to work out what the state of the land is before they made any kind of rash decisions uh, about the future. And that appears to be doing its job. Um, and, and I guess the greatest risk to that component is that there could be a second outbreak and then we burn through the remaining $14 billion just uh, on essentially doing the same thing again, which would be an absolute tragedy. But um, we've also made the decision as a government. There's a lot of ways that you can choose to stimulate an economy to inject capital. One of them is uh, you give everyone a tax cut uh, or you um, just mail a cheque to everyone, sort of helicopter money style, um, or you can invest directly in um, kind of industries uh, and creating jobs and so on. That's the option that we've chosen to take. Um, and so... Uh, and largely the analysis was that um, not not only construction but vertical construction, um, uh, the services, tourism, hospitality, um, um, retail and so on are areas where you're seeing the greatest downturn uh, and um, greatest pools of unemployment emerging and so it makes sense for us to invest in things that are substitutable at least in the near term there. Now if you choose to then take a long term approach, you invest in things like housing i.e. vertical construction, which is way more jobs intensive than horizontal construction or even tall uh, vertical construction. Um, you know, insulation, uh, you know, things like that. Um, and the the choices that we've made, uh, some of them are things that are kind of in the grand scheme of things, climate neutral, like the 9A pool or, you know, a, a 
Greymouth Police Station or, you know, a courthouse, you know, those sort of things, which are projects that kind of needed doing um, and are construction projects. So we'll keep that industry going in that area for a bit uh, until things otherwise recover. Some of them are kind of bigger projects, and then others of them, and this is where I'm talking about flirting, point in a direction. So... Um, on Friday, you know, we announced that one of the projects that we were co-investing in was with Heading Energy to put in place a hydrogen refuelling network for heavy freight vehicles around the country. Um, and that should make a significant difference to the viability, obviously, of uh, the proposal to get um, to, to replace our, our kind of diesel uh, trucking fleet with a hydrogen fleet inside that 10-year period. Um, and... Uh, the way it works, um, it's a small number of vehicles that produce a very large portion of transport emissions. So for, frankly, quite a, a small intervention there uh, to enable that refuelling network, you can start to flip a portion of the fleet and get a fairly dramatic gain in emissions reduction. So there are a few things like that that, we're, that we've um, said that we'll invest in as well. Um, and at the same time, we haven't kind of gone all in on the Green New Deal uh, that, you know, you see other countries or the European Union doing, um, but we're, it's, not, it's not dissimilar and it's certainly headed in that direction. There are two things uh, that we're just keeping an eye on, one of which is the outcome of the election. Um, yep, and, right. uh, <laughs> surprise. Uh, <laughs> interested. Uh, and, and, and the other is... Um, uh, essentially just needing to keep a very watching brief on whether or not we get this outbreak because our fiscal headroom depends on not having a second outbreak. Yeah, I suppose that's the big wild card, isn't it? Um, but it, it is really exciting to hear about the possibilities of um, hydrogen infrastructure and the announcement recently of proposals around pumped hydro um, opportunities with the shutdown of TY and so on. So I think it is, a, it is a really important point in our history that we're at, and we do have the chance to to make some pretty bold moves if, if we can get it done. And I suppose, yes, now we do have to wait until after the election. Um, but well, actually... Only sort of six weeks' worth of sleeps to go. <laughs> Indeed, and I assume everyone in the audience will be down there voting on the day, or possibly beforehand. Um, one, one thing I've wondered about, though, just sort of changing tack a little bit, let's imagine, and I often, if I, if I give a presentation to a, a public group, I, I often say, if any country in the world could become zero carbon, surely it's New Zealand. You know, we've got heaps of renewable resources and we've got a, a small and pretty nimble economy. Um, and, you know, let, let's say that New Zealand does become zero carbon. In itself, that doesn't really buy the global climate system very much, unfortunately. So I'm really interested to know, and I know you've done some, some work around this, what's the thinking around how we help other countries, how we bring other countries along on that journey? Yeah, look, I, so yes, at 0.17% of the global total, it doesn't amount to uh, much. Um, but a uh, couple of things about that. Um, one is that if you add up all of the countries that each individually represent less than 1% of the global total, collectively we add up to about 30%. Um, and so that's larger than China, it's larger than India, it's larger than the United States, it's larger than the European Union. So when small countries act and act in unison, um, then actually we can have a bigger um, proportional impact on the overall climate outcome than 
any one of those four kind of mega states um, in terms of their output. But I think the value uh, for, I think there's two things. One of which is we have to have our own house in order in order to have any real credibility in global climate negotiations. Um, and uh, we have always been seen as an honest broker um, and wanting the best outcome, but we've also been seen as um, being, um, as the Texans say, all hat and no cattle. Um, and uh, so we are restoring that, although... It, it's it's still, you know, like we haven't actually bent the curve on our emissions yet. So we're still, you know, people are still looking at us like, yeah, you know, you say these things and you pass laws, but, you know, where, where's the real action? Um, so so that's a journey. Um, and but, but I do think it's important. And I do see other countries where they have bent the curve on their emissions do have, you know, more credibility. And, and when they say, hey, you can do it, having done it, people believe them. But the other thing is um, that... You know, I just think the, the more active a role that we can play as a demonstration country, and the world needs demonstration countries, it needs lots of them. You know, we're an OECD country, we're comparatively wealthy, um, we're you know pretty advanced economy in, in most ways. Uh, if we can say, well, yes, you know, you can do it here, then you can do it in Los Angeles or New York City, or you can do it in um, you know Bucharest or, or or anywhere like that as well. Yeah, and that's something I often thought. It's an opportunity, a genuine economic opportunity for New Zealand. That it's a, action on climate change is often pitched as a cost. What's it going to cost the average household and so on? But if we can be seen to be leaders in this space, then that's going to attract investment and attract others to want to do the same. Yeah, I, I'm I'm hugely frustrated with the sunk cost fallacy around climate change. It drives me absolutely wild. Um, and you can blame um, economists uh, <laughs> as a category of people um, for... <laughs> yeah, I know, that was a little harsh. Not all um, economists. But, no, it's it just... You know, because because what's happened is, is over the course of, you know, 10 or 20 years, every time... You know, a policymaker says, hey, why don't we do something about climate change? Um, some boffin gets out their numbers and goes, okay, if you compare change to a baseline of zero change, which over a 30-year time frame, and I'm just trying to remember the last time in the global economy when nothing changed for 30 years. So if that's your baseline, um, and then you uh, do some CGE modelling, and it shows that, yes, actually, there is a cost involved in that, astonishingly. Um, and then they're like, oh, it's quite expensive. Um, and, and so then you don't do it, right? Um, and, and, and actually, uh, what is is being shown empirically from countries that are actually reducing their emissions is that the change happens faster and is cheaper and has more benefits uh, than costs. I'll give you an example. Um, I was talking to uh, this um, energy economist, Saul Griffith, um, who's an, 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 actually an Australian um, in, in California, and he's spent decades looking at the uh, US energy system um, where they've got fantastic data that you can drill into any part of, of their energy system and kind of go, well, what's the energy throughput of cucumber growing in Idaho? And it'll spit out a number for you if you're interested in that kind of thing. Um, and, and, you know, he points out 
that if you electrify your economy, everything is cheaper, right? So in New Zealand, let's say we electrify transport. For one thing, we don't then import $7 billion worth of petroleum. Now, up until January, um, our balance of payments deficit was... $7 billion, right? So you erase the um, gap in our, in our trade deficit um, with that. So it changes the economics of the whole country. Second thing, okay, there's the capital cost of the vehicle, and there's a decent argument you can make around that. But the running cost uh, of an electric car is a fraction of the running cost of an internal combustion engine vehicle. Um, it's lower maintenance, and the fuel cost is tiny. So actually, your ongoing month-by-month -month household operating costs shrink, which means that you then have more money to spend on other things, which you then spend on other things, and so there's more money in circulation in the economy. So uh, actually, you end up better off, and you can multiply that example across many, many things. The issue is the capital cost of replacing your internal combustion engine vehicle with, a, uh, with an electric vehicle. Not an easy challenge to overcome, but over the long run, um, it, everything in the economy ends up uh, ends up cheaper, mm. um, and and there then there are secondary benefits as well. Like, um, you know, your air quality is cleaner, and so respiratory illnesses are lower, so your healthcare costs are lower. So, you know, like you just multiply those those things through. None of those things are accounted for in any of the economic modelling that we've ever done about the costs of action on climate change, and it drives me wild. Right. <laughs> and Just not, if you weren't clear about that. Not only the cost, I suppose, of the, the vehicles, but all the infrastructure. You know, over a century and more, we've built up this infrastructure around fossil fuels, and, you know, that's kind of taken for granted, right? But we would have to replace that with appropriate infrastructure for charging, essentially. Yeah, that's true. But it, even let's look at that. So I drive an electric car. Okay, it's a company car. Um, uh, and we've got a, a, a medium-fast charger installed in the garage. Um, and yes, 80% of Wellington households don't have garages because we live on a cliff. Um, I'm pretty lucky I live in a house with a garage. Um, but 85% of, of New Zealand households do have garages. So you install a, you install a fast charger. That costs about $3,000 in today's terms. It'll I'd get a lot cheaper if you were to install them in 2.7 million houses. Um, down on uh, the corner of Th Thorndon Quay um, is a, a Z petrol station that's now been turned into an office block. Right. It's been a petrol station my entire life, but it's currently getting turned into an office block. What do you think the economic value, best value, is of a patch of waterfront land in the CBD of Wellington? A petrol station that no one's going to use because they're driving an electric car that they charge at home mm. or an office block. I'm going to go with an office block. So, you know, that infrastructure that we've got locked up in fossil fuel um, transport networks could be much better used in uh, a country that has, say, a housing crisis, you know, <laughs> like us. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. And getting back to the economic modelling, something I've rarely or perhaps never seen considered is, of course, the cost of doing nothing. You know, the economic damage from climate change, extreme events, all of the things that, that are starting to happen that can happen at a much greater rate and pace. Um, and it, 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 it's kind of outside the realms of traditional economic modelling completely, isn't it? This idea that the economy might actually crash because of all the damage from climate change, is that, I mean, what, 
Is that being factored in here? And, you know, what, what's the state of the art around that? Well, I mean, what's really interesting there is, is that it actually is starting to get factored in. So Treasury now has a specific f- fiscal risk in its long-term fiscal strategy uh, of the effects of climate, of needing to adapt to the effects of climate change. Um, and uh, I, I can't remember if they had an exact figure in there or not, but anyway, it's a big number. Um, and, and, and part of it is it is very early stage, uh, but we have... A number of data points emerging. So last week we we released the country's first national climate change risk assessment. Um, that is a litany of risk, uh, which um, Treasury I think will be quickly assigning some numbers to, and saying you know if we don't deal with these things, then you then you're looking at you know possible impact on the crown balance sheet of you know X billions over Y period of time. Um, we know some of the best data about the economic cost is already coming through from the insurance industry. So we know that um, uh, insurance costs of cleanup um, exceeded the rate of GDP growth, I think, in 2007, and has been growing ever since. So the rate of cost has has been growing faster than GDP, right, for 13 years, um, and so that gap's widening. Uh, um, if you to, or extrapolate that out to uh, the Cook Islands, um, who are further along in terms of the impact being felt there, um, they calculate that about 25% of their annual budget is climate change-related costs. 25%. One in four dollars that they spend is dealt with on climate-related costs. Um, and, and so you kind of go, OK, so if that's the Cooks, you know, who are further along the curve... You know, you can just sort of imagine what what that would be in a larger economy like ours um, over time. You know, effectively, the the effects of climate change move south over time, um, and so you you would you can sort of start to extrapolate some of those kinds of numbers. Yeah, yes, indeed, and I'm aware that um, you know colleagues of mine at Victoria, Dave Frame and Judy Lawrence, and so on, have worked on this kind of area and Treasury are well aware of the economic costs of, of what we can already attribute to climate change. So it's, it's great to see that. Yeah, so that's a good point. So Dave Frame has been brilliant in this area with this this attribution science, which is which is not well understood. Um, and over the course of the last few years, uh, I think has gotten better and better at being able to say, well, that the, the, essentially the portion of the event that is attributable to climate change is X, and therefore the cost associated with climate change as opposed to just a regular storm, is Z. Yeah, that's right. Um, And I think the best example that I know of, but there are more recent examples, is the 2013 drought, um, uh, which lasted for something like 12 weeks and was the worst in, I think, 70 years, wiped $1.4 billion off our agricultural exports for that year. Mm -hmm. I think that Victoria University, I think that was Dave and his team said that there was a 95% probability that the length and the severity of that drought was climate change related. So there's a very high confidence level uh, about the severity. So then you can essentially attribute a portion of the loss of overseas exports to climate change. Yeah, and we're already into the hundreds of millions of dollars at that stage. Yeah. I'm just watching the time. We should open this up to the floor soon. But one other thing I wanted to ask about, you mentioned the the climate change risk assessment that came out last week. 
Um, and the, the next move, and this is mandated through the Zero Carbon Act, um, again, uh, it's, it's now for the government to come up with an adaptation plan in the next couple of years. Um, and I was just interested in your thoughts around what you see as the priorities, given, like you say, there's this rather frightening table of the top ten risks, and they're all either extreme or, or, or close to extreme, and they have a an urgency that's, you know, on the scale of, what is it, 50 to 100, they're all in the 80s or 90s, you know, that does look urgent, it does look pretty dire. So um, where where should government be investing on that front? I'm just looking around to see if there's anyone from MFE in the room in case I accidentally spring your work program for the next two years. Um, so, yeah, so, the, so the, 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 how the, the Zero Carbon Act is set up is that, there, is that there's a requirement that the Climate Change Commission uh, has and updates every six years the risk assessment, and that provides a challenge to the government that then has to respond with an adaptation plan, and, and we need to update that every six years in response to the, in, in response to the Commission's risk assessment. Um, and so the risk assessment that we released last week was a statutory requirement under the Zero Carbon Act. We now, the government now has a statutory requirement to respond with what we intend to do about that. Um, and so... You know, if you're prone to nightmares, I wouldn't read this uh, document. But, um, you know, it does, what, 43 risks in total. Uh, no, 43 priority risks, I think. There are other risks beyond the 43, but they're not priorities. Um, uh, but then 10 really high priority risks, which are essentially what you need to deal with in the next six years before the next risk assessment. They're sort of saying these things are urgent um, in time uh, and severe in scale. Um, and when I look at it, uh, there is a common thread across, not all of them, but a majority of those 10 key risks that are related to the funding and financing of uh, adaptation. Um, the example that is the easiest for most people to grasp um, and the most talked about in the media is sea level rise um, because we love to live by the sea. Um, and there's a reasonable amount of the national wealth locked up in uh, homes within Kui of the sea, uh, and so then there is a question. What happens when the sea comes to visit, um, and over what period of time? Uh, and how do you manage a transition where, you know, you've got, you've got options? Some of those options include, you know, sea walls and pumps and hard infrastructure, uh, which has its own set of vulnerabilities, um, or if you don't want to go down that road, you've got a managed retreat scenario, which comes with its own very complicated set of issues. Um, now, that also applies to drought. You know, there will be areas in the country where we currently farm, for example, that may become non-viable. Uh, so in the same way that you have a beachfront property that may become non-viable over time, you might also have a farm that becomes non-viable over time. What, how do you handle that? Um, areas of increased fire risk, um, for example, uh, and so on. So there's a, a very, very complex piece uh, about thinking about how we... Um, support communities to make the right decision for themselves taking account of those risks um, and also how do you appropriately share that risk between the property owner um, the local council central government, the insurance companies and the banks without creating whole new categories of moral hazard um, that, that to me is probably the, the single most important piece of the jigsaw puzzle off which you can hang virtually everything else in, in the adaptation response Yeah <clears throat> I couldn't agree more and I think 
and that that idea that it's and others have made this comparison. It's like um, the earthquake risk. You know, if, if there's an earthquake, we don't expect individual property owners to kind of deal with the problem themselves. And in, in the examples around sea level rise, coastal inundation, changing agricultural conditions, it, it shouldn't be totally down to the individual to take that risk and deal with the consequences. But yeah, how are you? A portion that is, is is tricky. Yeah, well, there's the, there's the thing about grandparenting risk as well, right? So many people will have acquired properties with absolutely no foreknowledge uh, sure, of yeah. of that risk. Um, on the other hand, we we now live in a world where we have a great deal more knowledge, um, and and so you know, what's the kind of cutoff date between like <laughs> yeah, people exactly. who kind of have inherited this problem because they bought it 20 years ago versus people who buy it. Next year, um, when knowingly, yeah, you know, effectively, yeah, that's yeah. right. Mm. Well, um, so I'd just like to to thank you for taking the time to come out and have this conversation. So, cheers for that. And just before we. Um, depart, I'll hand back to our Vice-Chancellor, Grant Guilford, who will say a few words of thanks to. James, I know you've got to go, but just uh, to both of you, thank you very much. Um, uh, I think for both teasing out the challenges from the science and the, the risks that we face um, to the real politic of actually managing some of those solutions and the challenges in front of us. So thank you both. Uh, I would say, though, that it is good to be listening to uh, Minister of Climate Change who understands this stuff, who believes in this stuff, uh, he can talk to us about the fact that uh, risks of not doing anything are meaningful uh, and are factored into the way we think about our future, which was not the same a few years ago. So I think for all of us in the room who care about this matter, uh, there has been a good sea change this time. Uh, so well done and thank you very much and keep up the good work for us. Thank you. Cheers. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stephen Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Hi there,